as an industry, we have to embrace that the world is changing and you can either stand along the curb and watch the parade go by, or you can march in it. Welcome to the Operate Podcast, where we give you a behind the scenes look at company building from the perspective of the builders themselves. This is how we operate. Welcome to the Operate Podcast. I'm Kerry Ransom. Today's episode is sponsored by Bank Tech Ventures, the first strategic investment fund designed by the community banking industry for community bank innovation and investment. Bank Tech identifies leading products and technologies for community banks and works with the founders and management teams to maximize the impact of their solutions for community banks and their businesses. If you're a bank looking to innovate and invest in the future or a founder who wants to work with community banks, reach out to Bank Tech Ventures at banktechventures.com. My guest today is Greg Olendorf, the president and CEO of First Community Bank and Trust based out of Beecher, Illinois. He is a 38-year veteran of community banking and a super active leader and advocate for the entire industry. He's been a board director of the ICBA, the Independent Community Bankers of America, uh, his state banking association, and he's one of the most vocal advocates I've met for digital transformation in banking and the value of working with fintechs. I am super excited to record this conversation, Greg, because I do have the benefit of having this with you frequently, but we're going to memorialize this one. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Kerry. This is, uh, is going to be fun. Absolutely. Okay, so let's start the banking industry, we we have been through a really interesting time over the last month or so. How are you feeling about community banking right now? It, it uh, To say it's an interesting time, I, I like to think that after 38 years, I've, I've seen it all or most mm-hmm. of it all. And then things like SVB, et cetera, happen. And you sit there and say, we just had a bank fail by owning treasuries, right? So, yes. I mean, how how crazy of, a, of an environment is that? You know, it wasn't a bunch of bad commercial loans. It was simply a really bad risk management strategy, asset liability strategy, liquidity strategy, uh, funding strategy that, um, you know, blew up in their face. So, uh, you know, you think, like I say, we've we've been down the road and, and all the crises that can occur have occurred. Well, that's just not true. So mm-hmm. we'll just keep learning, I guess. I think community banks are still in a very great spot. I mean, you know, we don't have um, we don't have the kind of problems that SVB had. You know, I think community banks are going to learn a few new ratios and a few new metrics. I mean, mm-hmm. we've introduced five new uh, liquidity management metrics that no one's ever looked at before. Um, you know, we're measuring uninsured deposits now mm-hmm. um, that we've never measured before. Um, we're looking at you know total assets and total securities. You know, as our total loans and total securities as a percent of assets, which is something we've never looked at before. So we all are going to learn from this. But I, I think community banks and the relationship model is strong as ever. Um, when I talk to my brethren out there post SVB, um, I am not hearing crazy mad runs on community banks. Mm-hmm. I, I think, you know, the fact we've been around almost 108 years, our core deposit franchise is solid. Um, our customers are, are there for us and we're there for them. And our business model is entirely different. So uh, I'm, I'm certainly not worried about community banks as a result of uh, last month's activities. Sure. Okay. Well, let's move to what might be a little bit more concerning, because I think I agree with you that, that the last uh, month or so of activities is not a, a huge reason to uh, be concerned about community banks. I could not agree more, but I do 
I still have some concerns. So let's let's talk a little bit about that. We just had our annual bank tech summit, nearly a hundred banks. We talked a lot about working with fintechs, digitalization, and the fact that's not slowing down at all and probably even increasing. And really the competitive deposit environment that's probably as competitive as it's ever been for deposits. It was really energizing. I think I found a group that's ready to go compete, which is exciting. And I think, you know, makes us want to continue to find solutions and and find ways to support that. How are you feeling? You've been an early adopter of a lot of really innovative fintech and and partner solutions. How are you feeling about your ability to compete in this current environment? Yeah, I think we'll compete fine. I, I think it's more than you know than just the the rate on the the marquee out front. Um, mm-hmm. There's a huge difference between banks that have have started and and really had no deposit franchise whatsoever. You know, they were founded on on jumbo rate and high rate CDs and have never found a core deposit franchise, you know, um, that was worth anything. And and those banks are going to have difficulty. I think the banks, too, that went out and took all the liquidity and put it in the bond market at 10 year treasuries at 0.7 percent. We've got a problem, obviously, too. I talked to a banker last September that told me that his AOCI component was 100 percent of capital. Um, that blows me away. But I mean, I, I couldn't understand why, you know, the why some of the banks were paying what they were paying. But when you look at the industry data and when we've got a number of tools that we use to, to watch peers and mar- regional market players and whatever, and you see how bad the liquidity metrics are for some of those banks, you can understand why, you know, even in an environment where there's a gazillion dollars that were dumped into the banking system, why they have to pay up. Um, those are probably strategic risk management mistakes that were made along the way. I mean, if, if you mm-hmm. burned all your powder up and then all of a sudden you need it again and, and now it's all underwater, um, that's a problem. So I, I think there's there's a couple of different camps, some that really took some aggressive risks to try to squeeze out the last nickel of profitability when it wasn't there. And those that you know kept some powder dry and, and have got some liquidity that gives them the ability to maybe manage the balance sheet and not have to compete at the absolute margin of, of this deposit uh, war that may be going on out there. So I don't know, I may be wrong, but I, I think there's there's really two sides of that equation. Some are going to watch margins erode away again extremely rapidly, and others are probably going to be able to get away with not paying absolute market because they've got a solid core deposit franchise mm-hmm. and you know a reputation and relationship with their customer that isn't based on the latest and greatest highest rate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great, great insights, Greg. Thank you for sharing that. I want to ask a follow-up here because I think you have a somewhat unique position, which is at the end of the day, a bank is a business. And, you know, I have a lot of listeners who understand this at, at a reasonable level. I have a lot who don't. So I want to I want to think about it from, you know, traditional business side. A lot of the investments that you've made, as I know, have really driven a tremendous amount of efficiency into your business as well. And I think not enough banks yet realize that that is a big part of the value of working with financial technology companies. So share how that is benefiting you. It's not just about net interest margin and um, there, there are other elements to this business that you are really way out in front of. I read an article probably 25 years ago put out by one of the accounting firms and there was a time back in the day where everybody was looking for the next magic bullet. You know, gosh, if we only had a vibrant credit card program, we'd 
we kill it. We'd just make sure. a ton of money. And the article basically uh, it was, took apart the, the beginning of the UBPR, which is such a simple way of looking at life, right? It's interest income, less interest expense, plus non-interest income, less non-interest expense, plus or minus loan loss provision for pre-tax revenue, after taxes, after tax revenue, that's it. It's all that's what our business is, right? It's, it's really simple. Yeah. And what this article suggested is that if you manage a basis point in the correct direction for any of the first five things, okay, it's all the same basis point. Doesn't matter. One more basis point of interest income, one less basis point of non-interest expense, whatever it was, mm -hmm. it all fell to the bottom pre-tax, just like any of the other numbers. And I think there's a lot of institutions that are hung up on, you know, running really hot, 85, 90% loan to deposit, you know, always struggling for liquidity, tough time to compete in the municipal market because you can't pledge, you don't have any bonds. And that's the only way to make money. And we unfortunately aren't in a market area where we have just robust growth all the time. So we've got to figure some other things out. I look at it from the other side. We've focused on non-interest income and non-interest expense for a long time. We still do over 100 basis points of, of non-interest income. Uh, my peer, I think, does 42. And my non-interest expense, expense number over the last five years has dropped, I think, 120 basis points Amazing. for a variety of reasons. But part of it is looking at and finding fintech solutions that have allowed us to do some efficiency projects and some workflow projects that we were never able to do before. Bankers will tell you one of the greatest problems today is finding quality employees, hiring anybody, frontline teller staff, forget C-suite people, you just can't get anybody. So you've got to find another way to get it done, right? Um, car manufacturers do not build cars the same way. I mean, robotic automation builds the majority of the car as it goes down the line. Mm -hmm. So banks have been really slow about adopting workflow and automation projects. And when I look at, you know, commercial lending or, or, or residential lending, the amount of paper that's pushed around, the amount of documents that have to be archived, keyworded, you name it, you name it, and they stack up on people's desk, and then you can't find the financial statements and, you know, et cetera. There's just a lot of, a lot of overhead in those processes. Well, some of our fintech solutions have allowed us to streamline out a lot of those things. So my efficiency ratio in the last five years has dropped 12 points. Hmm. That's, that's a real number, and it pays bills. You know, so I don't have to run as hot on the top end if I can really manage that middle component of those five metrics more efficiently. And without some of these FinTech projects that we've done, you know, I look at my peer community banks and they run 66, 67% efficiency. Five years later, they run 66, 67% efficiency. That's a tough place to be. It's, it's, you know, it's not the worst, but it's not, it's not probably good enough when you run into some of these other competitive pressures. So if you get deposit pressure and you've got to do something on rate, well, it just comes right out of the bottom line. But if you found some efficiencies, maybe it gives you a few basis points that you can afford to put back mm. into the depositor's pocketbook and still do okay for the bank side. So these, these projects have really been beneficial. And we're, I think we're still only midpoint on where and what we'll get out of all of them by the time they are fully implemented as the, this 12 months rolls on. But we've been on this for a while and in the last five years has been really good for us in, in finding some cost savings by the use of financial technology. And it's probably something that never ends. Let's be honest. Like it's, it, you know, you, you have a never. huge advantage because you're so far ahead and it's going to be hard for somebody to catch up to you quickly. 
Well, it, it probably ebbs and flows, obviously. I'm sure there'll be a moment where we you know, have to hire somebody and we pop up sure. a little bit or so on. But I think the fact that we've done it and I think there's still room for improvement, you know, I do, I do think that gives us somewhat of a competitive advantage. Yes. And being open to these type of solutions and being willing to be an early adopter um, gives us a lot of opportunity to work with the entrepreneurs to, to craft them the way we want them a little bit, right? We get a lot of say in how these products work. I mean, we're, we're beta one on a really great commercial lending innovation project right now. And it's not done yet and it will get done this year, but it's going to take what that process is and just revolutionize it going forward. We've already had huge improvement, but what's left is even better than what I've done. So mm -hmm. it is a constant, constant path, but it all takes time. And I, I guess my sense is if you, if you don't start, well, you'll never get there. That's right. So let's, let's go a little deeper into that. What is it about the bank or about you or culture that got you comfortable being that early adopter and advocate for, for doing that? Probably a little bit of a long story, but I think it's telling. So I joined the bank in 1985 and in 1988, I was a pup commercial lender and was trying to compete in my market and the old software system we were running our core on, I couldn't do variable rate loans. I couldn't do payments that weren't regular. I couldn't do interest only for periods and whatever. It was just terrible. And I went to my boss and I said, I can't compete. I mean, I, I just don't have the products that, you know, the ways to do things that we need to do. We didn't have an integrated general ledger. I mean, it was all manual posting. We had people sitting around writing manual tickets all day long, bad situation. So myself and, and um, my CIO, Karen Burgess, uh, got put on this project. We worked with uh, Burroughs back in the day, and they showed us um, ITI, Information Technology, the now Fiserv, and Jack Henry, who had just started porting their code from IBM onto the Burroughs system. So we went to Lombard and, and with my boss, and who was not a heavy technologist. He was, he was always supportive of what we did, but he retired in 2001 with a Royal typewriter on his desk, just to give you a, a, a picture, right? That's pretty vibrant. So Karen and I and, and my boss saw the Jack Henry program in the morning. We had an RFP of what we wanted it to do. And my gosh, it did so many things that we weren't doing. And it answered all of our RFP. And he, was in, he thought it was fantastic. But then he left for an um, appointment. And Karen and I were left to see the ITI program in the afternoon, which we thought was better. And um, we got done with the day and said, well, we're going to make a recommendation to buy the product the president didn't see. wonder how this is going to go over. So... We grabbed dinner before we went back to the bank. Heads are exploding. Never seen so much information in one day. And I wrote a white paper and we spent a quarter million dollars of the bank's money to replace our, our aging computer and put in all of this software. So we started uh, to convert and um, our conversion date was January the 27th, 1989. That just tells you how important that day was because I still remember it. And we were going through and mapping out and doing all the specifications and so on and so forth. And we needed to get our boss involved because there were some things we just, you know, they weren't, we didn't have titles. I mean, we, we had nothing. We were just, we were a 25 year old and a 30 year old. And that's, that's what we were. And we just Amazing. couldn't get him to engage because it wasn't his thing. Now he was supportive of our project wholly, but he just wasn't going to give us the time to sort through these issues. And we found that we were calculating um, the way we did our real estate loans. We posted to the customer's favor, but we didn't post according to the note, but it was always to the customer's favor, but we were leaving income on the table. So we said, we got to change a bunch of these things. And we had to put in dual control and we had a, we were putting terminals on everyone's desk. And it was this huge project. 
So we walked into his office one day after being extremely frustrated for a month trying to sort this all out. And I said to him, um, we're going to have to change the job description of every human being in this bank because of this new technology. And he looks at me and he said, um, really? And I said, yeah. I said, we have all these controls. We have dual checking. We have you know, all this stuff that we don't have today. And he said, okay, great. He said, um, who are you going to tell first? And I said, who am I going to tell first? I mean, no one reports to me. No one reported to Karen. We had no job titles. I mean, who are we going to tell first, right? <laughs> and he said, you just got done telling me you're going to change the job description of every human being in this company. I assume you're going to want to start to let them know that. I said, let's call in Dorothy. And Dorothy was in loan processing. I don't know why I picked her, but I did. And we brought Dorothy in. And then we paraded 25 people through his office, explaining to everyone what their new job was post-conversion. That did not make some of my 60-somethings very happy because they were used to doing it manually off of a green bar report for those in your audience that are old enough to know what a green bar report is <laughs> and it never had a terminal and were scared to death. And some of them said some really not favorable things to the 25 year old kid that was gonna tell them they had to do it differently. Post-conversion to their credit, a lot of them came back in and said, this is the coolest thing we've ever done and thank you for teaching us how to do this. So it was reverse mentoring back in 1988, mm -hmm. which I will argue is something we need to do a whole lot more of in 2023. Hmm. But anyway, we got in with the ITI, we got to know them very well. And we started doing a whole bunch of beta projects with them in the early 90s and through the 90s, we were the first bank to do um, online banking, commercial crash management, debit, debit cards, uh, you know, we put in the first ATM, which was proprietary, no one in our market had an ATM. We did check image statements, we were one of the first five banks that did that we had the first data warehouse, uh, we were number five, I think, in the whole ITI world in data warehousing. So we did a lot of those early projects because I'm 35 miles south of Chicago and I have to compete in a, you know, there's 400 and some charters left in Illinois, mm -hmm. throw in the credit unions, the non-banks, the fintechs, the big banks, the regionals and everybody else. And we just got this crazy world of competition. So we always felt like we had to outkick our size and mm -hmm. outkick our coverage because um, in 1988, we were a $26 million bank. So, you know, we had to do all of this stuff to meet, you know, to be competitive and relevant. So I think when, when we got then through the recession, which was horrible, Chicago got slaughtered uh, of the five community banks in my market, we being one, four of them are gone, the other four are gone. Um, and then we tried to recover and bail out of that mess. Um, then we kind of had that dark decade where nothing innovative happened, right? That the, the 2010 decade was just boring. Nothing went on, except these little guys called the fintech disruptors started to, you know, start to eat some of our lunch. And I was concerned about that and had no bloody clue about what we were going to do. And then comes along the, you know, the ICB accelerator that we stumbled onto at the beginning and beginning or the, right at the end of year one and got involved heavily in year two and have been ever since. And I said, holy cow, this is kind of like what it was back when it was ITI and they were being innovative, okay? And we were doing early adopting projects, which we knew how to do and we're risk takers and we understand how to de-risk those transactions. So for Karen and I, we said, gosh, we've done this before. It was just a decade or two ago when we had new stuff coming from our core provider. Now we're getting it from our FinTech partners. But Managing that process to us was secondhand because we'd already done that before. Mm -hmm. So I think it gave us a huge advantage on how to start adopting fintech solutions, because in essence, we had kind of done the same thing a couple of decades earlier. Great story. And I think 
to your point is so instructive. So I'm gonna I'm gonna turn it a little bit because most of your peers can't tell that story. They have not been an early adopter, a beta tester for the better part of 30 plus years. So what advice would you have for them? What should they be doing differently today in 2023 to start that approach? Well, in banking, I mean, I think some people think we take deposits and make loans and that's our business. And it's not. I mean, that's that's something we do. Mm-hmm. But we're in the business of risk management, right? That's right. I mean, we you, you've gotten the the government put out some years ago, the nine risks that we had interest rate risk, credit risk, liquidity risk you know, legal risk, reputational risk, and I should know all nine, but that's pretty good. And now you've got, you know, um, fintech risk, right? And it's it's the risk of the disruptors eating your lunch or not participating in being relevant with some new technology. So I think there's risk on both sides. I think we just have to embrace as an industry, we have to embrace that the, the world is changing and you can either stand along the curb and watch the parade go by, or you can march in it or you can get in front of it and, you know, be by the banner that says, this is where the parade's going. Mm-hmm. And I know when I was willing to be right up front, and I know some people talk about, and we've talked about this, Carrie, about, you know, being a fast follower. Well, the world's going so fast right now that there really is no such thing as a fast follower anymore. I mean, either you're in the, in the front of the line or you're, you're really lagging the whole party, right? Mm-hmm. Or you're not involved at all, which scares the daylights out of me for my community bank brethren. I, I, I'm really concerned about that. And I, I spoke on that topic a dozen times in the last 18 months trying to encourage. But I think what banks have got to do is they've got to realize that there are some risks, but there are risks on both sides. Mm-hmm. There are risks in doing a fintech project and having it fail. And we are huge believers in fast fail. Mm-hmm. We de-risk the contract. We're not exposed to a whole lot of money. And we're willing to put some time and effort in it to see if it'll work. If it doesn't, thanks, been great. We're going to move on, right? Mm-hmm. So we're not doing five-year contracts with a bunch of upfront money and a bunch of annual recurring monthly money and all that kind of stuff. We've got to, we've got to find another way. And, and the fintechs are, are willing to engage in that sure. because they need customers and they need people to work with, right? But you, you've got to have some, uh, some ability to deal with the risks that are embedded in that for sure. But it, the, the counter risk is is not doing it at all. And, you know, I've seen a lot of statistics. If you run your DDA TRAN file uh, and look at where the money's going, I mean, you know, PayPal and Venmo make up 10% of the TRANs running across our bank room. I think that's probably something we ought to be paying attention to. And in, in not knowing that or not dealing with that is a huge risk. So mm-hmm. you're still taking risk on, you don't think maybe you are, but you're still taking massive risk on by acting like the problem is going to go away or that worst case, it doesn't exist. Or you can do the, do the thing where you take some, you know, chosen risks and you can start with some fintechs that aren't as difficult, but I'm going to go back to the reverse mentoring comment I made earlier. I've been speaking to some of the young uh, banker groups in Illinois at our community bankers association, and I'm encouraging them to walk into their boss's office and say, I want to put my hand up and I want to take on a fintech project of some Mm -hmm. kind that actually solves a strategic planning problem for our bank. And they need to know what those problems are, because if you want those people to be with your bank and be successful and stay in the career of banking, you got to give them something in a path. And they're digital native, right? I mean, they grew up, you know, if they're right hand or left hand, by which hand the phone came out of of the womb. I mean, that's just the way it is. That's right. And so why don't we take those kids and, and work with them and teach them some project management skills, 
let them show us how they handle technology, teach the gray hairs in the room, which is, is okay. And we teach them, they teach us, and, and we make it where it's interesting and it's a career. And I think the risk of doing that is so much less than the risk of doing nothing. So good. And, and that was you with your project when you were, when you were 25, right? So I, my boss gave me all the rope I needed and Karen as well to hang ourselves a thousand times over. And when he retired, I said that, and I said, my job was to not jump off the chair. Mm -hmm. And and they want it. I totally agree. I mean, we, they one, want of our, one of our adages at, at Bank Tech Ventures is how do we help make banking cool again? And the way I think about that for the next generation is giving them the ability to come in and do things that they think are cool. And that what they think is cool is what the future customers are going to think is cool. That is going to continue to make the bank really relevant to that changing demographic in the marketplace too. We've got, we've got some young folks that have come in in the last handful of years. And I've got a, a kid that's going to intern with us this summer that I intend to hire when mm -hmm. he graduates a year from now. And he's working on one of our FinTech projects. He's going to get involved in our tech stack and some project management and whatever. He thinks we're cool. Yeah. I mean, we're 100, almost eight years old. And I got a 21 year old that thinks we're cool. That's what we're aiming for. Right. And, and my other young ones that are learning new things and are getting involved in projects. I mean, they think there's, this is a career and it's not just a job. If we can get a group of those folks that can get to that, that mindset, then we solve by growing up staff rather than trying to poach somebody from somebody else. Mm -hmm. And then their culture doesn't match with mine and, you know, and, and they're expensive and all this. Why don't, why don't I try to find some of these young, youngsters that, that have got some gumption and, and work with them and teach them and educate them and send them to, to classes and train them and let them play with a project or two. I, I don't know. To me, it just makes all the sense in the world. And, and I'm worried too, Carrie, uh, there, are, there are banks that tell you they don't have the staff. They can't do this stuff, right? And the reason they think that is because, you know, they've outsourced a DP. We still run an in-house DP shop. So mm -hmm. I control my own destiny. But I would argue that the fintech, and one of the things I've been speaking about recently is, you know, fintech software is a service, right? SaaS. Mm -hmm. So the first word we all, the first letter S we all get, it's software. We all understand we're buying software or some type of technology as a service. The second S, it's the S nobody's paying attention to. And the second S is an extension of your staff. Mm -hmm. So yes, you pay them something on a monthly basis or an annual basis, but what you're doing is you're buying talent. So you, you take a fintech and they have really smart, unbelievably adept technical people but basically, I buy pieces of them to help me do something, but I don't have to buy a whole person. Mm -hmm. And so I don't have vacation, sick, 401k match, long-term care, long-term disability, health insurance, you know, those stack. I just buy the part of them I need to help me with that particular project. And so I, I, I want to debunk the idea that if you've outsourced DP, you don't have the people. No, the software as a service we're buying some of the people back, but on an a la carte basis, very efficiently to help us do things that maybe we don't have the staff for inside. But it doesn't mean you can't do it. It's just you have to think about that expense as not just a software expense, but it's sort of a personnel substitute expense, but at a lower actual overall cost. Yeah, it's, you know, I think that's a great perspective to have. You're getting the full solution. And that includes, and, and I think about that 
for even the staff that you do have, that a lot of software and technology, it's not in all cases to replace, it's to enable, to enhance. You know, you think about if your relationship managers are going to be way more effective in managing your customer relationships when they have really good at their fingertips information about the customer. If they're just winging it and smiling and, and shaking hands, sure, that's good for relationship. But when you can use information to help the customer be even that much more successful, and you get this, but the, but that's where I call it, you know, enablement of humans to be better humans is what so much of this technology is capable of doing. And, and frankly, you know, once people get used to dealing with the new tech and so on and so forth, I mean, it really does enrich and enhance the job. That's right. There's nothing worse than shoving paper around and scanning documents and digging through reams of stuff to find what you're looking for. There's just nothing worse than that. So if you get off that off the table and you, you make a workflow project that, that really simplifies that and speeds that up and they can spend more time doing the relationship thing or working on a project that's going to even make it better down the road, they're way happier. I mean, right. it just changes the entire dynamic. I, I don't think there's anybody in my shop that once they get used to the project and understand what it accomplishes, that hasn't bought into it. I mean, it's mm -hmm. really it's really enabling for the group that you're working with. So um, don't be afraid of it, I guess, is my my message. And start start with something you can get your arms around. But once you get some folks that that gravitate and understand these projects, they will they will multiply. So one of the things I hear sometimes is, Carrie, there are just so many of them out there. I get 100 solicitations a week from different fintechs. And on the surface, they all sound amazing because they're good at marketing or, or selling. So what are you using to cut through that noise to sift and find the things that actually do make sense for you to do? Yeah, first of all, um, and we've got a bunch of them. We've got a bunch of relationships, but it's not not just on my shotgun case. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's not why we do it. All the fintech solutions that we've implemented go directly back to solving a strategic planning problem that we have identified during our strategic planning. And I've been outspoken on this too. If, if a bank is mailing the strategic plan in and it's a day of golf with the directors and a big dinner and next next day we spend three hours basically redoing a board meeting, I'm, I'm going to just be blunt and say that ain't getting it done, right? Mm -hmm. But if you really do strategic planning well and you find, and I'm still a big believer in SWAT, you know, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. We have to know the internal and external environment, what we're good at, what we're not, what's, what's a great chance that we can do something cool outside of our bank and what's going to kill us. We have to know those things. But we, we come up with 30, 32 action items a year and we look for solutions. And, and so how do we find them, right? Well, when we ran into the accelerator uh, and we do the ICBA accelerator and we do FISs too, and we're not even an FIS client, but we still participate. Sure. So I think we've been through seven of them now. Um, we just go with our eyes open and see what's, what's out there. Now, six out of the 10 companies, maybe today don't mean a thing, but I archive them. Maybe it'll mean mm -hmm. something. A handful of our fintechs right now are companies we started doing business with two years plus after the time we met them because something changed. Sure. or we were ready for something new. But the bottom line is, is we try to find ways to solve our problems. And so, or take advantage of opportunities or embrace a new product line that we don't have. And so if you go from that perspective, it helps you sane out 
the noise of, of mm -hmm. all that are there. So between the accelerator, between what you guys are doing at BTV um, and other sources that we turn to, we probably participate in six, seven fintech related functions a year, some better than others, but we get to see a lot. Mm -hmm. And we're looking for solutions that solve identified strategic planning problems. And when you see those two things mesh up, that's when you start to dance. Now, we've talked to, I mean, a lot of fintechs. I, I serve on ICBA's uh, selection committee. And so I've seen over the last three, four years, hundreds. You mm -hmm. know, you guys have seen more. But for a banker to see hundreds is a lot. That's a lot. And it's a, it's a good thing, right? And there's a lot of them that just simply, you know, I, I always say, is it a feature, a product, or a company? Mm -hmm. Features need to be sold to somebody who has a product. Products need to be, you know, enhanced so that you can actually find it to be a company because I have to do business with companies at the end of the day, because my fintechs have to survive, they have to be successful, okay. you know, we, we're going to burn up all the venture capital money and eventually we better make, we better make real revenues and we okay. better make profits or it doesn't work. But we, we work through that, we sort through that, we, we talk to, we're a big fan of the entrepreneur, we've got to love and, and you guys say this too, you've got to love the jockey. Um, if you don't love the entrepreneur that started it, it's probably not going to work out. If you aren't symbiotic in your, the way you see the world with the startup founder, it's probably not going to work. Um, if they're distracted because they're going 16 different directions and one of them is community banking, but three of them are or four of them are, it's probably not going to work. Mm -hmm. So you start to sort some of that kind of stuff down, but it's amazing what you will find that actually potentially does solve a problem. And then you do due diligence, you go to the dance, you negotiate contracts, you de-risk it as much as possible. And then you got to be willing to put some time and effort into it. And that's the thing, that's the secret sauce at the end is, is you got to give your staff some rope and you got to give them the opportunity to get involved and try to work with these companies. And the ones that, that don't work, you, you run away from in a hurry. And the ones that do, you put the real time and effort in. And we've got a handful of them right now. They're doing stuff that I can't, I, we're doing things I cannot believe we're doing. Things that we've tried to do a dozen times earlier in my career that never worked. And now we found a solution that is so perfect for my community bank. And all I want to do is make sure that other community banks find out because mm -hmm. I want my fintech to be successful. Sure. So I hope they sell to somebody else because that's what keeps them in business. Well, let's talk about, you know, meeting dozens of fintechs. You're you're a, a banker and you're so generous in your time and, and your thoughts, Greg, but let's talk about fintechs. What advice do you have for them to be better at working with you and, and your peers? Yeah, it's it's funny. Um, I always tell the fintechs when I meet them that the last code I programmed was on an Apple IIe. It was Apple Basic. And I can do a mean if then go to statement. Absolutely. I, mean, I, 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 can, I know that. Well, right. Well, yeah. it, I, I could kill it. Uh, but if we have to do more than that, I'm, I'm pretty lost. Right. I can put a remark statement in maybe, you know, say, <laughs> well, this line doesn't do anything. But in all seriousness, I know what I'm not good at. All right. I cannot code. And so I act like I can. I tell them how easy it is to add a feature to the product, but right. I have no idea what I'm talking about. But on the same token, they've never sat behind the desk of a community bank CEO. And so the first thing I tell my fintech partners is you got to be good at what you do. I got to be good at what I do. But the more we listen to each other and collaborate, the better. When you start thinking that you understand community banking and you've never run one, we have a problem. And when I start telling you how to code something, we probably have a problem too. <laughs> so we have to laugh about that. Sure. But I, I think that's where you start. I think the fintechs have a difficult time pricing. Um, I think they they struggle just momentously. And I've I've got a 
I've, I've given a pitch to hundreds of them on, on how I want them to understand what pricing means. They're not competing against companies that do the same thing they're doing. They're competing for my revenues. Okay. Mm -hmm. They want part of my money. And if I pay $30,000 for five different companies, some are going to be the best buy for 30 grand and some are going to be horrible buys for 30 grand. And if you're the sixth one that come along and I look at your 30 grand request versus the other ones, and you don't come close to offering me that level of value, your price is wrong for me. Right. Okay. And, and I think they, I think they get that wrong often. I mean, mm -hmm. a lot of the FinTech modeling and the venture capital funding, and you know, this better than I do is based on a really fancy Excel spreadsheet that multiplies and multiplies and multiplies like growth is, is mm -hmm. coming. It's coming immediately and it's all great. And they're going to get X for their product. And they're probably wrong 99 times out of a hundred right. because they just don't understand how they're, what they're competing against. And, um, and so that's a big deal. I also, the, the other recommendation that I would give to fintechs is when you meet a bank and, and if you've been in some other vertical, for example, banking is highly regulated. And if you can't walk in with financial statements, a SOC, wherever you're at in that process, insurance, a contract that I can start reviewing, the due diligence package, whatever it all, in, whatever you need, if you're not ready to give me that, you are not ready to do business with a bank. So if you want to think you've got a cool product, but you can't answer any of those questions, it's a non-starter. And by the way, if you show me that stuff and you haven't done a very good job, you've done a lousy self, you know, self-identified SOC 1 and nobody's looked at it, nobody's tested it. Well, I mean, what is that worth? Zero, right? It's worth zero. And I know SOCs are expensive, but guess what? You want to do business with banks, you've got to provide and you've got to scope them well and you've got to have them done by quality firms and so on. If you cut those corners, you're trying to do business with the wrong industry because we cannot afford to cut corners, especially if you're going to ask for PII uh, and, and have customer data. You just, mm -hmm. you can't do it. So, you know, where's the, where's the tech stack at? It's all in a cloud. What, what work is being done on that? You know, can you prove to me that you're handling that tech correctly? You've got to answer all those questions. That's table stakes. But if you can't, you're not in my game. Those are just some things that I think that they can do better um, and, you know, and banks need to be ready to know what to ask for and then know how to handle it and deal with it because for the FinTech, the sales cycle is critical. And so if, if, the, if I flip the question over, the bankers need to be ready if they get a good package and, and they get the information, they need to be ready to get through it, distill it, ask the right questions because the FinTech needs to move forward too, That's right? Make they a decision. That's right. You need to make a decision. And I think for the bank perspective, you know, a, a fast no beats a drawn out maybe or or yes, because the, the fintechs, I mean, it, the idea of accelerator is accelerate, right? Mm -hmm. So they need to find the companies and the banks that are really willing to work with them and move forward. So if both parties play their role, it either works or it doesn't work. We get to there quickly. And I think that's a win for everybody. Totally agree. And I will tell you that this last answer that you just gave will become required listening for every bank tech that I meet. So that was great. Thank you for sharing that perspective. So useful, so valuable. Okay, Greg, you're, you are a career banker. You've been very successful as we, we've talked about, but you have other interests. You are not a one-dimensional guy like many of us, but I think I'd like to understand how do your other interests sort of help enhance you professionally? I, I'm a believer that whatever you do for a living, I don't care what your job is. You could be an electrician. You could be a builder. You could be a banker. You could be a lawyer. I don't care what it is. 
if the only thing you do is your job, um, I think life is less than fulfilling. I mean, I know some people are just so in love with their job. It's all they want to do. And I, 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 I get that if that's just really your passion, but I'm a big believer of you've got to have outside interests. And you know, what is, what's the old saying? You can have two vices. I, I probably break, I probably break <laughs> just a tiny bit. Um, but I think you got to have some other stuff And mine. Um, and most people that know me know this mine's golf. Um, I've, I've chased the little white ball all around the world, all around the U S and have seen, um, all of the world top 100, all of the U S top 200, all 50 States, a thousand courses in total. And it's, it's golf, such a great game for me as a banker, because golf is a hundred percent strategy and the lies, you know, um, not to pick on my friends at bowl, but you know, bowling alleys, they may oil them different, but the lanes, the same width, the distance is the same distance. The ball's the same. You know, I know they, they do some different things, but golf, every time I hit a ball, it goes to a different place. The lie is on level. The surface is different. It's in the sand. It's in the rough. It's in the fairway. It's on the green. It's different clubs. I got 14 clubs in my bag. The wind is blowing. The sun's out. It's cold. The temperature changes. I have to get from a spot on the tee to this four and a quarter inch cup somewhere mm -hmm. 400 some yards down the road. And I got to figure that out. Right. So it's athletic at some level. It's, it's huge strategy, but it's also the greatest place in the world to clear your brain. Because there's nothing like being outside and, and I, I, you know, to my hiker friends and my hunter friends or whatever, they have the same mm -hmm. thing, right? They have some of the same benefits that I do in my, my game. But to get outside, to be able to just get away from it, to think, to be with other smart people. Um, I play golf with, with a lot of different people um, in different industries. I learn from them. I hear about their businesses. It makes me a better lender, frankly, because I, I learn from people I play with that I'm not even banking. But I learn about their business and how they operate and what their philosophies are. Um, I've learned more on the golf course than I could possibly imagine. Um, and you learn a lot about people on the golf course because golf brings out everyone's best and worst <laughs> all at the same time. And I've had customers on the golf course that they showed me some signs that scare me. Right. And I've had other people that I met in the golf course and said, I'd loan them the million dollars out of my hip pocket because they're that quality of a human being. And I know they're going to pay me back. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's been my, it's been kind of my world passion uh, to, to see the world, to travel, um, and chasing, chasing that little white ball around on the green grass. Thank you for sharing that. And it is, I mean, amazing the golf as a, as a fellow golfer, I'm, I'm so envious of the amazing number of courses and, and experiences that you have had. And, uh, hopefully we'll get to continue to we gotta tee it up, Carrie. That's this one is of these days. I, know. I mean, I know you were just in Chicago for BTV. It's probably a little early in our season, but you need to come back to Chicago or, or see me in Pinehurst or something. And we're going to tee it up. All right. I told, I will take you up on that 100%. So what's one thing that your, your friends maybe don't know about you or your bank peers don't know about you? Hmm. I was, I was doing okay so far. I, I, I had answers <laughs> to, to your other questions. Um, what don't they know? Wow. Um, you know, I think probably the, the thing that maybe a lot of my friends don't know, I grew up in a, a funeral home in an ambulance company. My, my hmm. parents owned a funeral home. It was fourth generation uh, when we sold it about five years ago because we ran out of family that was willing to be a funeral mm -hmm. director. And I was probably the one that broke the, mm -hmm. the chain. But what happened, and, and I think why I've, I've been able to do some of the things I have is number one, in those businesses, you need to communicate effectively, really effectively. Um, you're talking to people in the worst possible time of their life when a loved one has passed or you're dealing with a patient that may be in horrible distress and can't really communicate. And I was an EMT for 20 years and, and I had to learn how to analyze a situation without 100% of the information. 
And in banking, I think a lot of our bankers sometimes, you know, they want 100% of the information to make a decision. Well, at that point, it's not a decision anymore. It's already asked and answered. You know, we have to make decisions with barely 50% of the information. Mm. You know, and we treated patients and, and carted people to the hospital at 100 miles an hour because um, I drove a lot. I was, I was um, you know, I was the guy behind the wheel trying to duck traffic and get somebody to the hospital to save their life. And I, I learned how to decide what we needed to do in that situation. Was it as critical as it looked? What was the patient telling me if they couldn't tell me? You know, I learned how to take phone calls when I was, my parents were out for dinner and somebody called the house and grandma died at home and I needed to get somebody there to take care of grandma and bring her to the funeral home. And I was doing that at eight years old, probably, you know, um, I was an EMT at 21 and I grew up really, really fast. And so all of those experiences have been amazing because learning people, the psychology of death and dying, the psychology of health and, and, and sickness, um, dealing with frantic, you know, family members watching a loved one, you know, that's just had a heart attack. But I learned a lot of adult skills really young. And so when I got in this business and I was a 22-year-old pup commercial lender, I didn't feel like I was at a disadvantage dealing with my 50-year-old clients or whatever, because I thought I had lived a lot of life by the time I got to, to, um, to 22. So that's probably something most people don't know. I'm so glad I asked that. So thank you for sharing. We're, we're getting toward the end here. I want to actually go back to where we started talking about Silicon Valley Bank and Signature and the fact that a lot of businesses had to shift their bank accounts very quickly in the wake of not knowing what was going to happen. And I think it's also caused a number of other businesses to consider whether they were startups or others their banking relationships. I see this as a big opportunity for community banks to reassert why they're so valuable and relevant. How do you answer those questions to a business who says, why should I consider a community bank as my financial partner for my future? You know, I think that's um, an idea that we had never really contemplated before. Um, when when SUV failed, um, we were we were at ICBA Live, and um, we were talking amongst some of the folks involved in BTV and the ICBA Accelerator about some of our companies that may be exposed. And uh, we actually reached out to um, a couple of fintechs, uh, one in particular, that frankly, we didn't do business with, but they were somebody we knew. We liked the entrepreneur. We liked this company. It just was a product we didn't need. We're actually engaged in discussions right now with one of those fintechs about becoming one of their primary banks. Um, and the, hmm. the argument is, and the pitch is that, you know, they're interested in doing business with community banks and that's the space they want to be in. And we as a community bank, bank commercial businesses, and we've done startups. Uh, we, how many community banks have started the, the two guys in a garage story, the two gals mm -hmm. in a garage story, right? And, and those businesses have been highly successful over the years. And so we're not, we're not averse to that. And so we're, we're talking to one right now about being one of their primary banks. And it's a, a fintech that has gone through the accelerator. Um, I think, frankly, we ought to spend more time thinking about that as, you know, there's a lot of us that, that could successfully handle the needs of a fintech and, you know, and get them less exposed to, you know, some of these other folks that, you know, it maybe wouldn't have worked out. If they hadn't bailed out Silicon Valley, there's some folks that would have been in a pretty bad way. I think our community banks can help solve that problem. And, and we certainly want to be one of those banks. Mm, makes a ton of sense. A little rapid fire. What are you most excited about for your bank this year? 
I, I'm most excited about continuing on our, our digital journey, um, continuing to make progress on these projects, you know, wrapping, wrapping some of the longer term projects up. Um, Cause some of these FinTech projects, I mean, I don't want to make this all sound like it's just a walk in the park. I mean, some of these are two, three year projects Absolutely. and we're in year two on a number of them um, that I think will by the end of the year really have as, as a key part of our operation. We are also excited about um, some, you know, we're, we're happy with Fiserv bank and, and Fiserv appears to be more interested in some of the open banking. Um, and we've had some really good discussions with some senior management there about what they're trying to do to help us uh, integrate FinTech with them. I, I thought six months ago, that was going to be way out of my price point and something I'd never be able to do. And for the moment, I'm, I'm encouraged that there may be three, four, five of our FinTechs that we're going to be able to tie into our core data on a real-time basis, which I think is super exciting because that's what needs, that's where we need to get to. I didn't know if we'd get there this quickly. We had talked to some of the integrators about, you know, doing some middleware things, but man, I'd really rather be out of the middleware business and more in the direct connect business. And I think, um, I think over the next few weeks, we're going to embark on a couple of those projects. And I'm hoping that 12 months from now, we've got a number of them queued up and, and, um, and connected because that solves the problem. You know, my core does a great job at, at keeping me in balance, archiving reports, you know, accounting system of record. That's all great. And it's the single point of truth. I need to have my FinTech data to be equally as good so that my users are not looking at two different data points and one being a last night update and one being a current update. So um, I'm super excited about that possibility because, again, I didn't think that was going to happen maybe quite as soon as now I do. Very exciting and uh, excited to stay in touch with you on that for sure. Last question. What golf course are you most excited to play this year? I love that. That's, that's great, Carrie. You, your questions are great. Um, I, my home course in is Royal Doorknock, and I'm going to get to get to make a couple trips to Doorknock this year and, and get, get a few, uh, maybe a dozen or so rounds in it at my favorite course in the world. So while it's not new to me, um, it's, it's this little town of 1,200 people in the far northwest corner of Scotland, right against the sea, and it's, it's a pretty special place. So um, getting back to Doorknock is always fun. So cool. Well, Greg, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today, for your friendship, for your support of what we're doing at BankTech, for all you do for community banking and for fintech. And it's just been such a pleasure to, to get to know you over the last couple of years. And I'm, I'm so excited for what's ahead in this partnership as we move forward. So be well. Thanks again. And, and we'll talk soon. Thanks, Kerry. We appreciate everything you guys are doing. Keep up the great work and, and helping community banks on this journey. It's a, it's a big community, then, and the more people we've got at the table in the community, the better off we're all going to be. You guys are a key part of that. Appreciate having me on. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Operate Podcast. If you like this conversation, as a favor to me, you can rate us, review us, or subscribe, or tell your friends. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Operate Podcast. Until next week, get out there and operate.